You're listening to The 123 Show with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Wednesday afternoon. We're talking about archaeology and its role in today's world and also ways for data recording and analysis in the archaeological fieldwork. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Peter Cobb, an assistant professor in both the faculties of arts and education at the University of Hong Kong. And Dr. Cobb is a field archaeologist, a ceramic specialist, and also a digital humanist. Uh, Dr. Cobb leads fieldworks in the Near East each summer, and his information science research engages with the recording and anal- analysis of multi-model data about the past, including 3D spatial and morphical modeling. Uh, welcome to the program, uh, Dr. Cobb, and thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. So uh, let's talk about uh, archaeology. Uh, it- it's much more than just digging. I, I know that's a, a bit of a cliche. Um, so how would you sort of explain its uh, role and relevance uh, in, in today's world? So archaeology is about studying and understanding the human past through the objects left behind by people who came before us. And our field differs from history in its focus on these objects rather than on texts. So this allows us to do uh, two special things. First, we can... Um, obviously, uh, study humans um, from the time before written records, but we can also study the everyday lives of people, including ordinary members of society who may not have uh, known how to write, which until recently was most of the population. So we can learn about um, what these people ate, um, you know, where they worked, uh, how they traveled, how they uh, traded objects, and how they memorialized their relatives after death. Uh, furthermore, archaeology views the past over very large timescales from centuries to millennia. So this helps us to understand where we came from and how our societies developed. After all, humans have an innate curiosity about our predecessors, right? Yeah. Um, So we can observe how human societies have changed in the past and how we've adapted to challenges, you know, such as changing environments. So I hope that this uh, type of knowledge better prepares us for the future. Now, on your profile, you also call yourself a digital humanist. Uh, What does that mean? I'm so glad you noticed that. Um, So information technology has, of course, you know, permeated every aspect of our daily lives over the past few decades, right? It's only natural that technology should therefore impact the way we do academic research. No longer are humanity scholars sitting alone in a dusty library poring over old books. (laughs) <laughs> We're now applying all sorts of advanced information and data science techniques to our work. So my historian and literary scholar uh, colleagues are digitizing old texts to study language patterns and, and word use. In my field of archaeology, since our goal is to study the human past through the, the objects, um, we collect significant quantities of data of all types and formats. So on an average day, I'm, I'm working with maps, 3D scans of architecture or objects, relational databases of text and numeric data that we've collected in the field. So all these digital tools make it possible for me to work with a lot more data than I used to be able to work with. And and it allows us to remotely collaborate with uh, my international team on this shared data and, and to apply new methods like machine learning to our research. But my ultimate goal remains to advance our understanding of humanity's past. So how do you sort of digitize it? Do you collect artifacts and scan it? How does it work? Well, it really starts with the the field work. So I I go to um, um, 
the country of Armenia every summer. And what we're doing is we go out to our site and we take our smartphones out to our site. We take cameras. We have fancy GPS devices. We have drones. We have all this data. And when we're on the site, what's most important is we, we want to understand the spatial layout of the site, where we find the objects that we dig up. And so we do a lot with 3D modeling these days, for example. We'll, um, whenever we dig something up, dig up some architecture, find some objects in it, we'll often stop, take our cameras out, and you can actually make a 3D model today just using two-dimensional photographs and some special um, software called photogrammetry software. Um, so we, we record exactly where we found everything. We use the GPS devices to put that onto the Earth. And then we have a very good record of um, everything that we dug up because archaeology is actually considered a destructive science. In order to study um, everything that we're working on, we must remove it from the ground. And that means that nobody else can ever dig it up again. So I need to record it as accurately and as quickly as possible so that we can save it for future generations. We also take the objects home to our, our field lab in Armenia. And we'll do things like photograph the objects, weigh the objects, enter information about the objects into our database. And we're starting to do a lot with 3D scanning of the objects because what we're really interested in is the information in the object. And that includes, for example, shape information, which tells us about the function of the objects. Um, or we wanna study the color of the objects to understand how they were fired or, or what people were trying to um, show with their objects. So there's a lot of different technologies that we use in the field these days to, um, to work with all of our data types. And what sorts of tools do you use when you sort of um, find these artifacts? Do, do you sort of go there with a fossil brush and, you know, all those sort of um, cliche Hollywood imagery comes to mind, but what sorts of tools <laughs> do you use? Yes, ultimately, it's just a, um, a job of, of going out and doing physical work. Um, so we will go out, we'll, we do two kinds of work. We'll first of all, we'll go and walk and hike across the landscape to try and find new sites. And that's as simple as just looking on the ground in front of you. Um, and it's really exciting when you come across a, a new scatter of pottery shirts or some um, architectural remains. How do you and once know where we find the sites, how yeah? do you know where to go in the first place? Well, it's, it's a combination of a, of a few things. First, it's um, general experience, being out there in the field for, for many years, many, many decades, talking with people who live in the area, who have um, farms in the area, who are walking around and seeing things, and then just looking at the landscape, because it's general, you can generally get a sense of where you might find um, material on the surface based on the shape of the landscape. For example, um, river valleys tend to flood uh, frequently. And that covers up archaeological materials. It's a little harder to find things in the river valleys. But up on hills, people often put things up there, you know, so that they can look out over the valley and protect themselves. So it's often a place where we can find things. We also use satellite imagery these days. Um, we have access to um, really great uh, high-quality imagery on the internet, um, which can allow us to see even outlines of, of uh, architectural ruins. But we can also look at um, spy satellite photograph, pho photo photography in, uh, from the 1960s um, to show us what the landscape looked like 50 years ago before there was um, some development in that landscape. And so this allows us to find those new sites. 
I see. And when you sort of come across um, artifacts, or I mean, you're also a ceramic specialist. I mean, h- how challenging is it to put the pieces back together? Say, you know, that there might be pieces missing. So h- how do you know what exactly the object is? So most of the time, most of the pieces are missing, unfortunately. Most it's of very the time, rare when we... Most of the pieces are missing, even. <laughs> <laughs> it's very rare when we come down on a complete vessel or one with uh where we've where the where the vessel is maybe not even smashed we can actually find whole vessels when we're digging um but a lot of the times um we will find the either they'll be smashed in place and we will find most of the pieces but most of the vessels because of the way that these sites are are sort of churned up over time from erosion from people living there again everything gets uh, scattered around the site. So most of the time I'm working with just small pieces of each uh, pottery vessel, for example. So it might be a little piece of a cup or a little piece of a bowl, maybe a handle, maybe the base of, of uh, a vase. And I, I, I prefer to look at these, um, these special pieces where we have a piece of the rim or the handle because um, this usually indicates what the whole shape of the vessel is going to look like. People tend to make vessels, tend to make bowls and cups in the same shape over and over again. So if you've seen uh, one piece from one part of a vessel and you get a, a second piece from another part of the vessel, over time, even though they're not all from the same uh, bowl, you can build up a general sense of what that bowl is going to look like. And remember that these bowls are usually um, uh, created using a wheel, and so they have symmetry. Um, around the whole bowl. So even if you have only a section of the bowl, you could estimate what the rest of the bowl is going to look like. And we're starting to use the computers to help us do these kind of uh, analyses. Um, so one of the goals of my project is to see if we can't 3D scan more ceramic shirts, um, make it faster to do that, so that the computer can actually help us to start to puzzle these things back together. Wow, technology is amazing. So even if you find a little piece, you're able to use sort of computer science to um, guess what the remaining piece is or how it should really look like. We're at the very beginning of, of being able to do this, but within the next couple of years, we're going to make a lot of progress on this. And it's going to be a huge um, uh, saver of time for myself. <laughs> Now, um, Dr. Cobb, you also lead fieldworks uh, in the Near East uh, each summer. So where exactly is the Near East? Ancient Near East, sorry. Yes, so um, Armenia, the country that I go to every summer, is in the ancient Near East. And this is the term that we use today when we're talking about the ancient periods of what we now call the Middle East. So that includes countries from Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Egypt this whole part of the world. And this part of the world was very, very important for human history for a very simple reason. It's in the middle of three continents. So ideas, technology, and people, they all needed to cross this place in order to move somewhere else in the world. So this favorable position has led to several important early developments in human civilization. So about um, 9,500 BC, at the end of the last ice age, we see the world's first agriculture in this region. Uh, people started to plant their, the, plant and harvest their own crops and to, mes- to domesticate animals rather than hunting and gathering. They settled down at this point. And around 3,500 BC, we see the world's first city at the site of Uruk 
in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in what is now southern Iraq. Um, with urbanization, we also see many other important developments like narrative art, monumental architecture, and most importantly, writing. Um, this is where they start to use the first writing in the world, the cuneiform script, which starts by 3000 BC. That's 5,000 years ago. So this is an exciting place to do archaeology in the world, and it's why we run our project in Armenia. And it's also an interesting region to compare its long history with the complex societal development that took place in East Asia. Wow. Uh, and do you bring students there as well? Yes. So um, uh, because our, our field project, project has been running a couple of years now, we've had an opportunity actually to change this into uh, a class for the University of Hong Kong. So this summer, I have t 20 uh, Hong Kong students who are signed up to come and join us on an experiential uh, learning class through the Faculty of Education called uh, Cultural Heritage and Information in the Field. So we're digging at our site uh, called the Betty Fortress, which is this large uh, monumental uh, fortification site um, in, in this uh, area of Armenia where we work. And it's a great opportunity for the students to not only gain an uh, experience doing archaeology, learning about the past, but um, also learning about a new culture um, as they work with the Armenian students uh, side by side. And they also get exposure to uh, rural living conditions. So last year I had an opportunity to teach a group of students how to, how to climb trees for the first time <laughs> in their lives. Wow. Um, can, can we also talk a little bit more about um, the more the, the most exciting thing that you've found so far to date? <laughs> it's funny. This is a question I often get asked. And unfortunately, it's a bit like being asked, what is your favorite child? Um, <laughs> I am always so excited uh, whenever I find just a single piece of pottery, even the plainest little piece of pottery. Um, that was broken off from maybe a, just a, a, an average storage vessel. Um, every piece of pottery sort of talks to me, and, and I want to fit every piece of pottery um, into this larger puzzle of understanding life in the past. This uh, past summer, when we started excavating at this, uh, this new site where we're working, um, we did find one other kind of really interesting thing. Um, so in the past, when people were sending letters to each other, um, there was a way to sign the letter called a seal. And so what they would do is they would, um, you know, they sort of roll up their paper and they would put a little piece of clay, clay to, to close the paper uh, off. And then they would have something um, with an image on it. And in this case, it was a metal ring with a little person carved in it in reverse. And they put and they stuck the metal ring into the clay in order to uh, basically sign the this was their letter, that they were the last ones who had touched it so that there would be authenticity when the person who received it opened it. And we found the little clay impression of uh, a person. Wow. Um, and this is from, but th this is from probably from the medieval period, but only about a thousand years old. But it was an amazing find because you can see somebody had carved this little person uh, uh, into the clay, into the um, ring which was then used to impress into the clay wow that's exciting that's a that sounds like an exciting f find indeed uh, dr cobb how do you sort of tell how old something is i mean i mean it's something that's hundreds of thousands of years old or thousands of thousands how can you tell exactly 
Well, we have a couple of different methods. Um, first, we can start with history. Uh, as I mentioned, in our region, um, history goes back 5,000 years. And so we have historical records, which are going to tell us, for example, about uh, um, events in the sky that, that people have observed, and we can date those um, with some accuracy. Um, if we're dealing on a day-to-day -day basis with the site, the most important way that we date things is called um, is through what's called stratigraphy. Stratigraphy simply means that the stuff near the top of the surface is the stuff that is most recently laid down. And as you dig deeper and deeper and deeper, you get to older and older and older levels. I mean, it's obvious because when somebody has lived there, they may there may be a house there, they, they um, left, their house collapsed, somebody came later, built a house on top of that, somebody came later, built a house on top of that, and you get this building up of the stratigraphy. So I can tell that if I have a good stratigraphy, I can tell you that these sets of ceramics are newer than these other set of ceramics, which are lower down and therefore older. Now, once we get a good context where we have those ceramics, we can also then uh, potentially do things like taking a carbon uh, sample. So if we have something that was burned, used to be organic, we can actually measure the carbon-14 in that sample. And um, for the last 50 years, we've been able to tell uh, the dates um, of, of when that uh, object uh, died based on this analysis. And it gets us within 100 years usually. So it's quite accurate. Um, the, another good way to, to date things is if you find a piece of wood with tree rings in it, you can actually look at the pattern of the tree rings. And this is going to, uh, if you line up all the tree rings throughout history, you can actually figure out where um, in that uh, set of history your sample is from. This is called dendrochronology. Wow. That's really fascinating. I was going to ask you, how do I become an archaeologist? No, but let's talk about uh, your, your science uh, methods of using sort of uh, digital uh, tools to, to record. Um, so what, what sorts of uh, information science methods do you use uh, to record and, and, and do analysis? Well, for uh, many years, we've been trying to in increase the uh, use of technology in field work. And our goal is really to collect more data in a shorter amount of time with more accuracy um, than we've been able to do before. And we do this um, by taking the computers and the digital equipment directly into the field. Um, so whereas back in the 2000s when I started, um, we wrote everything out on paper, and then we had to go back and enter it into the computer in the lab, which took a ton of time. Um, now we're, we're able to do all this directly when we're digging, which, which saves a lot of time. And so um, as we're recording all this information on our smartphones, as we're doing these 3D models, um, as we're collecting uh, drone, satellite, uh, drone imagery from above and satellite imagery, we can actually use new tools such as uh, mapping tools. There's a type of software called Geographic Information System, or GIS, it allows us to analyze, for example, and I'm doing a study right now to understand what were the preferential ways that somebody would have walked across a certain landscape. Because there are easy ways to go, right, if you don't go over the mountain, but if you go around the mountain. Um, and the computer can actually calculate, um, for example, the amount of time it would take somebody to walk from point A to point B, and it can tell you which uh, path they would have um, they're most likely to use because it was the least amount of effort. 
And so this allows us to sort of um, anticipate where the ancient road systems were, um, wh which sites were connected with each other. Um, so that's that's one tool. I'm also hoping, as I mentioned before, to use the 3D modeling of the ceramics to start to do automated analysis of those shapes so that I could calculate, for example, um, how much uh, the, they could store at a certain site based on how many storage vessels I found and, and the, the volume of each storage vessel. If I can add all that up, I could say, well, this is how much wheat they could have stored there, or this is how much uh, wine they could have stored there. Um, so these are just two examples of um, some of the techniques we're, we're starting to use um, to analyze data in archaeology. Wow, what, uh, what a clever way to use modern technology to understand a little bit more about uh, the past. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time this afternoon, uh, Dr. Peter Cobb. Really, really enjoyed uh, hearing uh, from you. And also, I'm sure our listeners learned a lot about uh, archaeology uh, this afternoon. And that's uh, Dr. Peter Cobb, an assistant professor in both the faculties of arts and education at the University of Hong Kong. And Dr. Cobb is a field archaeologist, a ceramic specialist, and also a digital humanist. Thank you very much much indeed for your time this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me.